All right, you can turn your Bibles to the book of Titus. Uh, Titus chapter 1 will be in verses 5 through 9 this morning as we continue our look at this wonderful book of the Bible. And last week, of course, we began looking at the, the letter itself after going through some introductory material. And while there are many themes and topics that are discussed in this letter, the main order of business for Paul in writing to Titus is to tell him that there needs to be order in the church. And, Titus, and he tells him not just what there needs to be, but he tells him how to do it. And we will move into this week, the first step in that process of bringing order to the local church, and that is that there needs to be leadership. There needs to be elders in the church. And then he's going to tell them, tell Titus what he needs to be teaching to the people in order to continue this idea of bringing order to the local church. And so this morning, we will look at what makes a good pastor. And there are a lot of opinions about that and a lot of, uh, a lot of varying and different opinions, unfortunately, because the Bible is pretty clear about the, these qualifications. And he makes it obvious in letters that he wrote to pastors, to two different pastors, if you remember from our scripture reading, First Timothy 3, those list of qualifications is going to be very similar to what we find here in Titus chapter 1. Something that's also unique in this letter that Paul is writing to Titus is that he gets right down to business uh, after introducing himself or saying who the letter is from and who it's going to. Uh, he goes right into the material, and that's kind of unique with Paul's letters, as normally he has some sort of introductory statements stating some great doctrinal truth or saying how encouraged he is by the the actions of the various church that he's writing to and these kinds of things, how blessed he is by them. Not so with Titus. He goes directly into the material that he wants to speak about. And this would be an indication, at least to me, it seems that he's very familiar with Titus and that he is in probably regular communication with him. And it reminds me, uh, kind of in a backwards way, about a text that I received from my mom. And mom, if you're listening, this is it's funny. Uh, at any rate, you get a text. I get a text from my mom and it'll say, Hi, Kurt, this is mom. Uh, you know, blah, blah, blah. Love you. Have a great day. And uh, it, yeah, I've got caller ID or idea. I know who it's from. You don't have to do that in a text message. The person knows who's getting it. So uh, that's kind of the way that Titus, that Paul addresses Titus here. He just goes right into the material. And so we will, we will do the same thing as we uh, make our way into this letter. We've, we've seen the introductory material. Paul wrote the letter. He wrote it to Titus, written about 64 to 66 
And uh, after his first Roman imprisonment, before the second Roman imprisonment, he was in Nicopolis. It's a pastoral epistle, so a little bit different than First and Second Corinthians or Ephesians that were written to churches. It has a little bit different uh, focus because it's being written to a pastor or uh, a missionary probably more accurately in this case, but it's certainly about the local church. And as we're going to see, one of the main focuses is the pastor in the local church. It's about order in the church. Titus 2, 11 through 15 and Titus 3, verses 4 through 8 are probably some good uh, passages for us to memorize during our time in this study and the key principle is this, that the, that the local church must be orderly. And this is achieved through godly leaders who teach the Word and believers who apply the truth to their lives. And so last time we saw that God cannot lie. He is the one who has given us eternal life. He promised it to us in His Word. And He is faithful so we can trust in it. Uh, Paul is the one who wrote this. He was he considered himself a bondservant or a slave. A, we saw a voluntary servant for Jesus Christ. He, he's an apostle. He's one who was sent out by the Lord to bring the gospel essentially to the Gentile world. He's writing this letter to Titus for the faith of believers so that believers can be built up in their faith so that they will grow in their knowledge of this common faith that we all have, that is, belief in Jesus Christ. That, that term faith there, common faith, is common belief. It's not a common faith tradition or religion. That's not what he's speaking of here. He's speaking of our common trust in Jesus Christ. That is, nearly every time we see that word faith in the Bible, that's exactly what it means. Trusting in God in one way or another. So this week, as we look at what makes a good pastor, we're going to see that he that this pastor is going to be faithful, needs to be faithful. He needs to be above reproach. And he needs to be devoted. And we'll, we will look at this, obviously, in some more detail. First off, he is faithful. Here we are in our uh, outline. If you remember our outline from the letter to Titus, we're beginning right here with the qualifications for the pastor in the local church. As that seems to be from what Titus is receiving here from Paul, that seems to be step one in creating order in the church. Notice Titus 1 and verse 5, it says, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion, for the overseer must be above reproach, as God's steward not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who 
contradict. So notice that Paul uh, left Titus in Crete here. It would seem that they were in Crete together. Paul left and went up into Greece, probably Nicopolis or uh, Macedonia. And at some point after Titus was in Crete for a period of time, he wrote this letter and it was delivered to Titus. Crete, of course, is one of the largest islands in the Mediterranean. It's very geographically significant as people were traveling across the Mediterranean. This would be a good place to to stop, to shelter from the weather. That's what we find in Acts 27 when Paul is making his journey to Rome. Their intention was to go uh, and use to sail south of Crete and use it kind of as a block from the wind to uh, make their passage more safe. Well, God had something else in mind and changed the direction of the wind there and essentially blew them off course into the island of Malta. Uh, but at this point in time, Greek historians will tell us that this that the island of Crete was pretty well populated. It, uh, I believe, it was referred to as the land of a hundred cities, indicating there were a lot of a lot of cities and a lot of people on this island of Crete. So not only was it geographically significant for trade and these kinds of things, in Paul's mind, he sees oh. A hundred cities. That means, boy, we got to have at least a hundred churches here in this on this island. We better get busy because people need to hear the word of God. So he left. Uh, he left Titus in Crete in order to start these churches. And the language there in the English doesn't really, at least in the NASB, doesn't come across as strongly as it really is in the Greek language. It says, for this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Uh, Notice first off, however, that the first requirement of the pastor or the leader in the church, Titus in this case, is that he is found to be faithful. Paul had implicit trust in Titus to carry out this very important work that he had for him to do. He had known Titus by this point in time. He'd probably known him for close to 20 years uh, by the time he's writing this letter. Most scholars believe the Jerusalem Council was in around A.D. 49 or A.D. 50. Uh, That's quite a long time after uh, the Lord was crucified and rose again. Most people will put that in the 33 to 36 time frame. And so the Jerusalem Council, oh, that's working on 15 years after Christ went uh, back to heaven. Paul says that it was 14 years after his conversion in his letter to the Galatians, uh, which happened in Acts chapter 9, of course. Uh, the Lord met Paul on the, on the Damascus road at some point after the stoning of Stephen. We know this letter probably written around 64 to 66. Titus went with Paul to Jerusalem, we see in 
Uh, the letter to the Galatians again, Barnabas and Titus went along with Paul to the Jerusalem council. Uh, Paul probably met Titus on the first missionary journey. We, it's not recorded. We don't know that for sure. But at any rate, what we do know is that he was left in Crete. And he uses this strong language here to, to tell or remind Titus what he is supposed to be doing there. It's literally to correct what is lacking. There's something lacking in the local church in Crete, and you, Titus, need to be the one who sets it in order. The church needs order for it to operate the way that it is intended to operate. Paul wrote two letters to the Corinthian church. Well, actually, he wrote at least three letters to the Corinthian church. We have two of them in our Bibles. And essentially, those letters are telling them how to have order in the church. You Corinthians are not acting in an orderly manner. You need to do that. Here's where you need to correct things. Clearly, uh, Paul believed that Titus was faithful in order to accomplish this message. He, gives him, he gave him detailed instructions. That's the other part of this uh, strong language that he's using there in verse 5 that you would set in order what remains. Something is lacking, and I gave you detailed instructions about what you need to do. And so he's just reminding him of that. And what you need to do is appoint elders. And we're seeing essentially one side of the conversation here. That's the way all of the letters that we have in the Bible are. They're one side of a, of a conversation. And so there are some other details that we we can infer a lot of times but we don't have all of the details of the conversation i uh, don't want to make too much of a big deal out of it obviously this is an ongoing conversation that he has with titus here uh, and so he writes him this letter and there's a backstory to it we don't know all of the backstory so we don't need to really make too big of a deal out of it. But clearly, Paul had told Titus what he wanted him to do already, and that was to appoint elders as he directed him. The, he, Paul uses a couple of different words here in this passage that are refer to the same person. Here we have in verse 5, we have this term elder, down in verse 7, we're going to see the term overseer, and they are referring to exactly the same person. They're called synonyms, two words that essentially mean the same thing. This one is based on the Greek term presbyteros. You may probably obviously recognize uh, presbytery or presbyterian. That's where that term comes from, this Greek term. And so when he says that I left you there to appoint elders in every city, uh, what exactly is he referring to there? Does he mean that every church has to have multiple elders? Does, is he referring, the term is in the plural there, presbyteros, it is a plural term. But does he mean, could he mean 
that I'm sending you, there are multiple cities in Crete, and so every one of these cities needs an elder in the church. There are many cities, so you're going to appoint elders in every city, in every church, and it would still be plural. There is some uh, room for difference of opinion here. And it's not necessarily a, a bad thing. It's a good question to wonder whether or not there needs to be multiple elders, or does he mean one elder in every church in multiple cities? Uh, there is some evidence kind of for both uh, positions in the text. John was the pastor in Ephesus, uh, history will tell us, and Timothy was as well. At a different time, Timothy was the elder in Ephesus that's mentioned. And so uh, were there other elders or pastors in the local church in Ephesus during that time? A good case can be made for that. Uh, Money was sent to the elders, plural, for the church in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 11. You can see that, plural elders for the church in Jerusalem. Was there more than one church in Jerusalem? Good question. I don't know. Uh, There were definitely uh, plural elders met with Paul from the church in Ephesus, Acts chapter 20. Again, plural use of the term elders meeting with Paul. They came from Ephesus as Paul was making his way back to Jerusalem, same question. Multiple churches with one elder in each one or multiple elders from a single church? Uh, And there isn't really a biblical mandate one way or the other on this question. I think a case can be made for both. I think it's personally, I think it's a good idea to have more than one person in a position of leadership in the church. But what if a church body only has one man who's qualified, who's going to meet these qualifications that we see here? Well, the the Bible says, Jesus says, that we have to have multiple elders, and if there's only one, well, we just won't have a church. That seems kind kind of ridiculous. If a church is blessed to have multiple people who fit the definition of what an elder is, but then, boy, that's There's wisdom in multiple counselors, according to the book of Proverbs. Putting your heads together to solve issues, sharing the burden, and this kind of thing. Uh, Obviously, a good case can be made for that. Uh, Nevertheless, there is absolutely the qualification for an elder is that he needs to be faithful. Paul said this to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.2, the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Clearly, the pastor needs to be faithful. That is the main concern. Faithful men, uh, just as an example, don't say one thing and do something else. They don't go to a church and try to Uh, change their doctrine, for example. Things that we hear going on uh, quite often in local churches, unfortunately. Unless, of course, the doctrine is wrong. (laughs) and The the church 
pastor board or uh, search committee, whatever it is, wants to find someone to write the ship. That's, that's of course, perfectly acceptable. Uh, unfortunately, there's a trend in churches to hire pastors or to have pastors come to their church who aren't even the same denomination as the church that they're coming to lead. That's an issue for sure. Uh, faithful men don't take a job at a church with which they disagree and then come in and try to change, change things. Uh, that's, that's an issue. Faithful men, according to 2 Timothy 2.2, take the word that they have been taught and teach it to other people. So first, very foundational piece of information here that we can infer that the pastor needs to be a faithful person. Uh, Step number two, he is a man. I know we talked about this in our introductory material, but... It needs to be talked about again. And this may not be the last time that we hear this kind of thing. Because our society, I'm not sure if you realize it, but Western society, America, and American ideals, uh, the Christian ideals that our church was kind of, that our nation was, uh, whether we want to admit it or not, founded upon, are under assault. And it's satanically inspired. It is a satanically inspired assault. I'm not overstating it. And unfortunately, the church is complicit in this. Uh, Conservative biblical theology, and when I say conservative, I'm not talking about politics or a political party. I'm talking about conserving what God's Word says, has been under assault since the very beginning. That's what Satan did in the garden. Did God really say to Eve, you can't eat this fruit? Right from the beginning, Satan has wanted to cause doubt about God's Word. And it's happening within the church today, of course, and within the quote-unquote conservative church. This is happening today. Uh, Paul realized that he was under or faced satanic opposition in his life and in his ministry. He said, our enemies aren't flesh and blood to the Ephesians, referring to the demonic opposition that we face in this world. And we face the same enemy today. And and our enemy adapts to the various situations that, that he finds himself in. And so we need to be aware of that. And unfortunately, the church is following like uh, lambs being led to the slaughter or the dumb ox in the book of Proverbs who's going along with the adulteress. The church is just moving right down this path with this satanic opposition. There's really no nice way to say it. But the big push now in evangelicalism is and conservative evangelicalism is to have women pastors. And this is expressly chapter and verse talked about by Paul in the Scripture. We're expressly warned about this. We can turn in our Bibles to a specific passage 
that talks about this, and we'll do it shortly. First uh, Timothy chapter three. In our passage that that we read in uh, our scripture reading this morning, First Timothy chapter three, Paul talks about the requirements for the elder in uh, verses one through seven. In that, in those short verses. He uses the male pronoun, and pronouns, they, they mean something. Uh, I, I won't go into that. Um, nevertheless, pronouns are, are used for a purpose. They are to refer to the gender of the person who you are talking about, to make it more clear. Paul uses the masculine pronoun or a direct reference to the elder being a man 11 times in those seven verses. 11 times. He, him, uh, an overseer then must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, men marry women in the Bible, at least, anyway. And in a normal society, that's what we find. Men marrying women. The elder must be the husband of one wife. Uh, He must be one who manages his own household. Notice verse 4 there in 1 Timothy 3. If you have a, a New American Standard Bible, he must be one who manages his own household. The he must is in italics. That means it's not in the original. I didn't include those in the eleven. 11 express uh, references to the elder being a man. There are 14 nouns and adverbs in these seven verses that are masculine in gender. Uh, The Greek language has masculine and feminine nouns that go with the words. 14 of the nouns and adverbs in this or adjective, sorry, in this passage are masculine gender when referring to the pastor. 11 plus 14 is 25. 25 times in seven verses, Paul makes reference to the elder being a male in 1 Timothy 3 verses 1 through 7. That's three and a half times per sentence Paul does that. I think he's trying to tell us something there. And here's our express direct reference before we get to 1 Timothy 3 and laying out the qualifications of the elder. Paul says in 1 Timothy 2.12, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. The reference is in the church, of course, here. But to remain quiet, for it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. I'm not picking on anyone, not trying to degrade women or anything along those lines. I'm telling you what the Bible says, what God's Word says, how the church ought to be ordered. 1 Timothy 2.12, you can go and read commentaries or uh, journal articles, this kind of thing, writing about, or writing from the egalitarian, it's called, perspective that uh, egalitarian or complementarian are kind of the two positions here. 
theologically speaking on whether or not women should be pastors, egalitarians will claim that they should and that they'll try to make excuses for what it says here. I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man in the church. That is expressly clear, and it goes back to the way that we are created and the purpose for the way that we were created. Uh, Paul says so there in verse 3, for it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. This is a direct appeal to the God of the Bible, our Creator who made us the way that we are. And people don't want to hear this today, but we need to. You go back to Genesis, Adam was created first. Eve was the one who was deceived. Adam just, he sinned. He just outright sinned. Uh, Eve was deceived. And so, Paul says that creation, nature itself, is telling us that the man, a man, needs to be the one who is in charge of the church. Does this mean that all men are less likely to be deceived than women? No, of course not. That's ridiculous. Does this mean that men are inherently better than women? No, of course not. That is ridiculous. Does this mean that all men are placed in authority over all women at all times in every situation? No, of course not. That's ridiculous. It means that men in the church, for there to be order, need to be the one who is in charge. Uh, typically, men have been given the responsibility of leadership in the family, in our communities. It's been that way throughout human history. In a society that isn't completely insane, like the one that we live in, an unbelieving man would come, could come into a church and see a woman leading and would think, oh, that's weird, that's different than uh, the way it is and has been throughout all of human history. Uh, And that is because men lead. Now, of course, the cultural Marxists are changing that. And what we see today happening today in the world, or at least they're trying to change that, what we see happening in the world with all of this wokeism and, and these kinds of ideas is precisely that. It is Marxism. Make no mistake about it. It's just repackaged for a Western audience. That's what wokeism is. It is Marxism directed to America, uh, the Western Europe, the West. It is repackaged because Satan likes to repackage himself and camouflage himself uh, and direct his attacks towards uh, society that's that's biblical, or he wants to destroy everything and remake it in his own image. And so, the Russians had their version of Marxism. It was directed towards an agrarian society. The Chinese have their version of Marxism. It's called Maoism. It's exactly the same thing. It's just repackaged for Chinese society. Wokeism is Marxism repackaged for America, for the West, essentially. Uh, Marx was not an economist, in spite of what uh, everyone is going to try to tell you. 
he had some theories on economics. He, he was a philosopher. He was a theologian. And as we mentioned in our study of Proverbs, he was trying to create a theology for the world exclusive of God. Have a world that, that doesn't have God. All right, so what are going to be our standards? Well, we're going to find them right here, right here in our deep, dark hearts. That's going to be the standard because we don't like God's standard. And so we see this play out. It's the same with, with essentially all of the, the, the famous philosophers of this time, Marx, Nietzsche, Freud. Uh, they all contributed their depraved ideas to this theology of the world without God and his standard. Now, wokeism is particularly nefarious because it oftentimes appeals to our, our innate feeling of equality. Well, we're, we're equal, right? That's a principle of America, that all people are created equal, so why can't women lead in the church? Uh, and uh, after all, a lot of times women are smarter. A lot of times they're better communicators. Almost every time, without exception, they're going to be more loving. So, man, they fit these qualifications better than a lot of men do. However, they don't fit that first qualification, the qualification of being a man. And that's the way that God wants it to be. The fact of the matter is that God says, this isn't me saying it, God says, I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man in the church. And so we need to get our uh, selves in line and submit to God's Word, not Marx's Word. That, that would be a mistake. And so when churches promote women pastors, they're going directly, expressly against Scripture, chapter and verse. And the church... Uh, at large, is being duped by wokeism, which is really just Western Marxism. So, first qualification: he needs to be a man. First Timothy, or I'm sorry, Titus one six. If any man is above reproach, that's step number one. First Timothy three one through seven. Twenty five references to the maleness of the pastor. Notice in verse 6 that he also has to be above reproach. It says there, anakletos is the Greek term. Uh, he uses exactly the same term in verse 7, so we'll come back to this word, anakletos, again. But he says the same thing there in 1 Timothy 3, 7. Uh, and he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. It's actually a, a different term there in 1 Timothy. It means exactly the same thing. But that's what it means in verse 7. He has to have a good reputation with those outside the church. Anakletos literally means that he can't be called out on something. That kletos, you may rec recognize that term doesn't mean that he, that, he, that he doesn't have any sin in his life or that he never committed a sin. Uh, we're pretty much all going to be disqualified if that were the case. But he's got to have a good 
reputation. He's going to describe what that actually means in verse 7 and following. So we'll leave that for there. Uh, here comes another one. We've got a lot of hot-button issues in this uh, passage, if you didn't know. Verse 6, if any man is above reproach, here's one requirement for being above reproach. The husband of one wife having children who believe, it says here in the NASB, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. So when we see this husband of one wife, uh, it literally says one woman man is the meaning of that or the translation, word for word translation there of that in Titus 1.6 is one woman man. So now, what does that mean? <laughs> uh, whether we want to admit it or not, kind of similar to the multiple pastors, should it be one? Does it need to be more than one? How many? There is some, uh, there's some uh, leeway in this, believe it or not. Uh, and Actually, the term divorce or being divorced, it's not even uh, brought up here in this passage. He needs to be a one-woman man. If you want discussions on divorce, we have uh, a pretty extensive teaching on that from our study in Luke. We spent some time addressing that. You can look that up uh, and listen to that if you would like. But here, it's not really addressed uh, it mean, it says, it means he needs to be a one-woman man. So what exactly does that mean? Does that mean that if he's a widower, he can't get married again? Does that uh, uh, mean that he has to be married? Does the elder, is it a requirement that he has to be married? Some churches will hold to that position, and, and I'm not sure that it's necessarily a bad Thing, but you know, notice that there are a lot of questions that can come up. And in our society, we immediately read that and say, oh, he can't be divorced. That's kind of the first thing that at least pops into my mind, but it doesn't actually really say that. Does it simply mean that the elder can't be a polygamist? Oh, he's only got one wife, one wife at a time. That's what, that's what he means. Well, obviously that isn't the case because... Uh, God's standard for marriage, in spite of what a lot of the Israelites did, I don't care what, how many wives Jacob had or how many wives Abraham had or that Solomon had 700 wives and 2,000 concubines, they were all in sin when they did that. And the Bible, this is more evidence for the Bible that it's the truth to point out everybody in the Bible isn't a saint. <laughs> isn't perfect. We see their faults that are laid bare before us. The fact of the matter is, God said in the garden, and Jesus quoted it when asked about marriage, it is between one man and one woman for one life. And yes, we do have problems in marriages and in divorce sometimes. But the fact of the matter is that the, that the pastor leader in a church needs to be a one-woman man. He's faithful to his wife. He's not a philanderer. He's not a serial marrier, if you will. And that's the point. Uh, more iteration that, the, that Paul is making here that the elder needs to be faithful. And he demonstrates this by being faithful to his wife. God's standard, one man, one woman, for one 
life. Paganism, what did they do? They had multiple wives. Marxism, what do they advocate for? Divorce, remarriage, marriage between uh, two men, marriage between two women, literally marriage between a man and his dog if he wants to. <laughs> Uh, a, a man and a child. That's, that's paganism. That's Marxism. There's a direct link between paganism and Marxism. Both of them are trying to create a world, a society, without the standard of God and His Word. And so, the leader in the church needs to be a one-woman man. We will we'll leave it at that for now. He also has to be uh, faithful to his children. He has to be a faithful person. The NASB uh, council who translated the Greek here sa- says that this sentence needs to be children who believe. Uh, okay, they, they, they need to be, that could very likely be what it is. It, no, no matter what we think it says in the original Greek, it definitely means that they need to be faithful Children. So we can ask the whole number of questions here concerning this uh, point as well. Does that mean that the elder needs to have children? What if he doesn't have children? What if he has a medical problem and he can't have children? What if his wife has a medical problem and she can't have children? Are they automatically disqualified? I would say no. Uh, it, the, the, the elder or the person who feels, quote-unquote, feels the calling to be an elder, uh, he's married to this woman and she, doesn't, she can't have kids, so I need to divorce her and marry somebody else who can have kids so that I can be an... No, obviously. That is not what is being spoken of. The elder needs to be faithful to his children. And we, we really hate the term normal, in our society. I think it has a lot to do with this uh, wokeism, but I'll just go ahead and say it anyway. It is normal for men and women to get married and have children. There, it's out there. <laughs> it's out there. Uh, it doesn't mean that you're some kind of a freak if you don't. It doesn't mean you're a lower class citizen if you don't have children or this kind of of thing you have some kind of an issue you've chosen not to have children that doesn't that doesn't this isn't a a a, a statement against you and your decisions the fact of the matter is that the norm is that men and women get married and have children paul is addressing the norm here as a man when you get married and you have children you need to be faithful to those children and teach them about salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And uh, your home needs to be orderly. doesn't necessarily mean that the children, when they go out onto their own and begin to make their own decisions, they have to be upstanding, perfect Christians at all times. Uh, otherwise, you're disqualified. It, it's talking about your household and when the children are in your household. Uh, that's why it says, 1 Timothy 3, 5, but if a man does not know how to manage his household, how will he take care of the church of God? When your children are in your house, your house needs to be orderly. You can't have children who are, as it says here, 
accused of dissipation or rebellion, children who are just running roughshod, doing whatever they want, acting in a manner that doesn't, uh, that is regardless of the consequences. You, man, are in charge of your house. Lead your house. Direct it in an orderly manner. When you do that, you are being faithful to your children. And uh, rebellion is another thing that's mentioned here. You can't have rebellious children. Paul mentions that disobedience to parents are, is a sign of the end times. Uh, maybe, we, maybe we're closer than we think. The end of the church age. It's probably around the corner. We see a lot of the things that Paul is speaking of there. So, the pastor of a church, he needs to be faithful He needs to be a man. He needs to have a good reputation with those outside the church. How does he do that? He's a one-woman man. He's faithful to his wife. He's faithful to his children. His his home is orderly. Gives us a direct indication that he can uh, lead an orderly church. Next, notice that the overseer must be above reproach in verse 7. For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain. And so we see this term here that the overseer must be above reproach. He can't be called out. In the public's eye, he's kind of blameless, if you will. He has a good reputation there is an obvious sin in his life, a rebellion to God and his, and his word. Doesn't mean that he's, oh, he's good at hiding his sin. That's obviously uh, not the point. Be sure your sin will find you out, Moses said to those who wanted to uh, not cross over the Jordan in obedience to God. That's a, that's a true principle. It means this person is not living in blatant, uh, open rebellion to the Lord. That's what it means to be above reproach. And Paul is going to give examples of what that means. It's not an exhaustive list here. Uh, it's not all-inclusive, but it's a good uh, foundation for us to see what it means to be above reproach. Notice first off that he uses this term overseer here. For the overseer uh, must be above reproach. Synonymous term uh, to presbyteros that he used there in uh, verse 5. Here the term is episkopos that is used, and you may notice that term as well. It's uh, translated as bishop in the King James, New King James. It's literally... Uh, kind of a more word-for-word translation is this idea of overseer. Episkopos is the Greek term. We are probably reminded of the term Episcopalian or Episcopal. That's where they get this term from. And now that's kind of an interesting rabbit trail that we could go down as well. The Episcopal Church started in England because Henry VIII wanted to be the Episcopos of the church instead of the Pope in Rome. Oh, we may think on this, okay, let's uh, get some of this power distributed a little bit, more than just one guy in charge of 
the church. Well, the problem is Henry wanted to divorce his wife. The Pope wouldn't allow him. So Henry wants to start a new branch of the church, become the head of this new church so he can divorce his wife and marry somebody else. He did this about six times in his his life. He didn't he didn't do this for some spiritual reason. That's literally the beginning, the root of the Episcopal Church. Like, not trying to be denigrating here, just stating the facts. Uh, and it denigrated from there to become even worse, where they're literally torturing and murdering people who don't agree with their uh, various Bible interpretations. That that torture and, and maiming and murdering continued on throughout the 1600s. And now the Episcopalians are debating whether or not uh, ordaining women, uh, that that's long gone in the Episcopalian church. They did that back in the 70s. But now it's progressed onto gays and transgenders being ordained as leaders in the Episcopalian church. And the, I, I had just had to look this up. The, the first gay or homosexual priest was man was ordained in 1989 in the Episcopal church, open homosexual. Uh, his name was Robert Williams. Here's a quote from him. Monogamy, that's one man and one woman for life, is an unnatural, is, is, let me start again. Monogamy is as unnatural as celibacy. If people want to try, okay, but the fact is people are not monogamous. Ah, you're right. People are sinful. <laughs> the fact of the matter is, though, that God has a standard. It is crazy to hold up this ideal and pretend it's what we're doing and we're not. He died of AIDS in 1992. Romans one twenty six says, For this reason God gave them over to degrading passions, for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also the man abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Robert Williams suffer, suffered the due penalty of his error. So we're really uh, progressing, progressing well here <laughs> in the Episcopal Church. Unfortunately, uh, that's their history. Our history doesn't need to be the same. The fact of the matter is this term overseer, episkopos, presbyteros, they mean the same thing. Synonyms, synonymous terms, meaning referring to a leader in a church. And Paul gives several characteristics that a, an elder does not have. And then he's going to get to what the elder does have. How does a pastor live above reproach? Well, first off, he's not self-willed. He knows that the church is about loving others. Loving others is serving other people. John 13, 34 through 35, Paul or Jesus himself made that very clear uh, to the apostles in the upper room in the upper room discourse. He told them to love one another. That's how people serve one another. He just gave them an example of that by washing their feet. That's how others are going to know that 
you uh, are from God. This, the elder is not to be quick-tempered. Uh, that lit- literally means to have a short temper. Instead, we're to show grace to people. And you know, there's a little hint there. Believers show grace to one another. All of the, these standards don't really apply just to the elder. They apply to Christians in general. But nevertheless, uh, you know, I find myself personally, I'm super patient on the highway, for example, when the traffic's going at the speed limit and there isn't some guy in the left lane going 55 and the 75. And these, I'm super patient when it's like that. When it's not, sometimes I find myself not so patient. Uh, and that's just a silly example. Yeah, I'm sure you can apply that to your own life in more important ways. Ecclesiastes 7, chapter 7, verse 8 says, The end of the matter is better than its beginning. Patience of spirit is better than haughtiness of spirit. Do not be eager in your own heart to be angry, for anger resides in the bosom of fools. Think about that the next time you lose your patience. Anger resides in the heart of fools. The elder is not to be quick tempered. He's to be gracious and graceful to people. He is not to be addicted to wine, it says here. Uh, Instead, he's to be filled with the Spirit. And so we could ask a number of questions about this. Also, uh, does this mean that uh, a leader in the church can't drink alcohol at all? Well, I think you can infer that Timothy is told by Paul later that he is that Paul is telling him, "Hey, you ought to not just drink water, drink some wine for your stomach." That would imply to me that Timothy wasn't drinking at all. Paul told him it was okay for uh, medicinal purposes there for a leader in the church. I don't think there's a chapter and verse that is in the Bible that expressly expressly prohibits all drinking of alcohol. Uh, So, uh, you know, you can take with that what you will. I think a very very strong and absolute case can be made for not drinking strong drink from the Old Testament. That's specifically chapter and verse uh, mentioned. So what exactly is that? Uh, I'll leave that to you. But something that you're drinking for the express purpose of feeling the effect of it? Uh, That probably qualifies as strong drink. People who have a history of problems with alcohol, you ought not to be drinking alcohol. Drunkenness expressly prohibited by the Scriptures. Instead, we are to be filled by the Spirit, not wine, according to Ephesians 5.18. We'll leave it there. The elder is not to be addicted to wine. He's not to be a drinker. He's not to be pugnacious. He's, that uh, term literally means to be a bully, violent, a striker, he's called in the King James Version. He's not to resort to violence, whether it's physical or uh, to be a bully emotionally, this kind of thing, just intimidate people, boss them around to get his own self way. Uh, you know, a lot of these characteristics go together in a person person who's self-willed often is quick-tempered. Uh, maybe he drinks too much. And that leads to violence 
as well. I actually had to call security for the first time in a hotel, and I worked for my airline for 22 22 plus years, actually had to call security. A woman was getting uh, physically assaulted in the room next to me loud enough I could hear it. She's screaming and, uh, you know, it was horrific. Like, man, they're in there. I can't do anything. I called security. They were there quick, took care of the problem. Uh, It was horrific, terrible. A a leader in a church cannot uh, be characterized by that. He also can't be shamefully greedy, it says there, literally. Not fond of sordid gain at the end of verse 7. Now we could uh, go off on a big tangent here. We won't do that. Just think uh, Creflo Dollar. Can you believe there's a pastor in a church with that name? I'm not sure if that's his real name or he adopted that later. Creflo Dollar is the guy's name. And yes, he is all about getting the dollars. Kenneth Copeland, Joel Osteen. I mean, the list is endless of people who are in this for the money. It's not just the ones that we've heard of, but of course, there are, there are many examples of it uh, in smaller local churches that contend with the same issue. Uh, in Luke 16, Jesus said that you can't serve two masters. You're either going to hate the one and love the other or love the one and hate the other. You can't serve God and money at the same time. 2 Corinthians 2.17, uh, Paul speaks on this matter to the uh, Corinthians. It's so much easier when I have my verse sheet. <laughs> 2 Corinthians 2.17, Paul says of himself, for we are not like many peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. He's not doing this for the money, Paul says. He's not shamefully greedy. He's not swindling people out of their money. Those are requirements of a good pastor or a pastor in general. And he's also quickly... He's devoted. Verse, verses 8 and 9, it says, here are the positive ones. He's hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able to both be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. He's hospitable. Philozenos is the Greek term there, combination. You may notice that xenophobia, that term, uh, being scared of foreigners. Uh, this is the exact opposite of that. In fact, showing them brotherly love, being hospitable to people. That's what a pastor is. He loves what is good. He loves things like God's word, relationships in the church, his children, his marriage, uh, uh, being faithful, peace in, in the world and in our, in our relationships, uh, in these kinds of things. So that, that's uh, th- just some examples of what is good. He's sensible. He's in his right mind. He's wise-minded. He kind of uh, follows the book of Proverbs and applies those things to his life. He's just it says. He's, uh, that means he's not a pushover. He's not just giving people their way. That's not, that's not just in spite of what a lot of people call for in our justice system. They want 
things to be their way. That's not justice. Justice is, is making decisions based on the truth, adjudicating according to the truth. Is this person a criminal? Well, they ought to be charged with a crime then. Uh, it, being just is being able to make those decisions. He's devout, it says. He's devoted to the truth. He's devoted to God. He's devoted to what is right in keeping with God's Word. He's self-controlled, it says. That means that he's, that he's disciplined. Uh, Paul oftentimes makes references to athletics. 1 Corinthians, athletes are self-controlled. They're devoted. They're singularly focused on achieving their goal. They do this for a perishable wreath. We for an incorruptible one. Uh, the, the pastor is able to lead in this, in this way. Everything the pastor is doing is geared towards uh, or the athlete, everything the athlete is doing is geared towards improving his performance. Same ought to be true for the pastor. And he's faithful to the Word. And that has two results. He's able to exhort people. He's able to teach those in the church, encourage them, lift them up, build them up in the truth through teaching the Word of God. And he's also able to refute those who need it. He's able to correct those who are uh, contradicting the truth is what is being mentioned there in verse 9. So what makes a good pastor? First off, he's faithful. He's a man. Uh, and all of the other uh, things that are mentioned there, he's faithful to his wife. He's faithful to his children. He's above reproach. He has a good reputation with those outside of the church. He's several things that he's not and several things that he is. The fact of the matter is that he's devoted to the truth of God's Word and has a desire to teach it to other people to encourage them and correct them when they're wrong. And you may have noticed that this list, as I mentioned before, is, uh, of course, it's directed towards the pastor, but it's not just for the pastor. The pastor is a Christian He's supposed to be a Christian who leads. Good leaders lead from the front. They do the things that they want the, the people under their charge to do. There was nothing worse in the military than having a guy who leads from a desk. As a pilot uh, uh, in the military, if the guy who is a higher rank than you can't fly an airplane, uh, yeah, you're probably not going to get a lot of respect from the people underneath you. You have to be good at what you're leading people to do. And so when we see this list uh, as believers in Christ, we ought to be applying these things to ourselves as well. And when we go to a church, uh, when we want to start a church or go to another church, the elder, the person in charge ought to be meeting these things as well. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. Thank you for the truth that we find here. A lot of times the truth doesn't match up with what we find in the world and what the world tries to tell us. As is so obvious here in this case of the elder in the church. And we just thank you for the unchanging Word of God that we can trust in. I thank you for revealing it to us. Give us the strength and courage to stand in that truth. And we just thank you and praise you for doing that work in our lives. May it be fruitful 
and may it have an impact in uh, other people's lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.